The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I have with me today, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, how are you? Good to be here. The Texas guy. We were both down in Plano, Texas at the same time. Right. About a week ago. And I have David Rudy, certified financial planner with professional with Rudy Wealth Management. Dave, welcome. Thanks for having me. And Ryan Repko, who is a, well, financial advisor with Rudy Wealth Management and my son-in-law. That's the downside to everything, you know. (laughs) It's <laughs> a great title. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> you could call in at 356-9397 or text us on the te- Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. Uh, we also want to welcome those tuning in live on Facebook Live. It's important to recognize the past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. So. Uh, and again, uh, last time I did thank, and I want to thank again everybody who voted for us to make us the number one investment firm in Champaign-Urbana and the People's Choice Award. So, I think that's worth mentioning. I I think I'll take all the credit for that one, guys. I don't. We you guys haven't been around long enough. To, Fred, do you think they've they've been around long enough to take uh, any of that credit? To they make? seem to do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you think they're more talented than I am, Fred. <laughs> I, I probably agree with you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably do, and you guys probably do. Well, uh, F- Fred, correct me if I'm wrong, recession risk really seems low. And the reason I, I say that, we have new 40, so kind of updating the statistics here, just brief ones, new 49-year low in unemployment claims. I mean, that's not 49-week low, 49-year low in unemployment claims. Wages are up 2.9%, but I read something that if you really look at total wages, which look at total hours worked and the average hourly earnings, they were up like 5.9%, the strongest gain I think since 2009. So it really looks like wages are really starting to tick up. Retail sales are at all new, all time high, up 3.4% year over year. GDP, gross domestic product, uh, just kind of averaging uh, 2.9% on a like a smoothing out basis at a three year high. Uh, new home sales up 13%, industrial production up 4.2 at all time high. So the looks like we're, uh, industries are you know, industrial production, I think it speaks for itself. And core PCE inflation up 2%. And the PCE is the personal con- consumption uh, deflator that the Federal Reserve uses. It's kind of like their uh, uh, CPI index for inflation. Uh, it sure looks to me like if we have favorable leading economic indicators uh, combined with basically we don't have a yield curve inversion. Be certainly to me, tell me where I'm wrong if I am, um, why I'm not expecting a recession anytime this year and probably a strengthening economy going into 2019. And, and is there anything wrong with that assessment? I don't think so. Everything is, uh, has fallen into place here. We have uh, extremely low unemployment numbers. We have inflation right in the target range of the uh, Federal Reserve's uh, goal. And consumer sentiment is strong. And we've had... Uh, the growth in uh, uh, GDP to be, be one of the highest in uh, many years, so everything looks pretty good right now. The, the, the so again, uh, obviously things can happen in the future, but the, the point to make though is that uh, not having a recession is not the same thing as saying we wouldn't have a downturn in the stock market. It's certainly possible to have some kind of 
of the uh, correction or whatever you want to call it in the stock market, even though things are are pretty good in terms of the economic news. Yeah, and I read something. Uh, I think it was uh, from the Fat Pitch blog, and it was really good. And he uh, created a chart: uh, odds of various S and P five hundred one year total returns during U.S. economic expansions, and he had a chart that showed the likelihood of a positive U.S. equity return, which means stock market return. Sometimes we use these words like equity, and some people. A lot of people don't know that that's in, you know what we're really referring to is this broad U.S. stock market return. Uh, so the likelihood of positive U.S. equity returns when is high when the economy is growing, and the chances of a positive return are eighty-seven percent, return of ten percent or greater, fifty-three percent, and the return of twenty percent or greater going forward up about one out of three. And he put this is from an historical perspective. And again, past performance is no indication of future results. So we don't want anybody to, you know, these are just things to consider. Uh, but the decl- a chance of a decline of at least ten percent is uh, about a four percent chance. So it, yeah, I think that always. I think it's important what you said, Fred. Is um, I'm the incurable optimist, yeah. and sometimes <laughs> people will take that for go out and buy stocks because they're going to do nothing but go up. I'm kind of agnostic, as you know, from a, a financial sense. <laughs> In other words, I may re- I may see everything coming up roses <laughs> over the next twelve or twenty-four or fill-in-the-blank period, uh, but you can get a you can get sidelined, you know, sideswiped by a crisis or anything that pops up at any time. And it's in fact, you have to embrace it and respect that that's always a possibility. Sure. Whether it's a single-digit decline or a double-digit decline or something even worse. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure about that study seems a little uh, optimistic. If uh, if I were betting, I'd bet against the spread, but like a 4% chance of getting a 10% decline, it seems like a, a pretty good bet. If you can and I, and it, it kind of makes sense when you really look at, look, we've had tax re- reduction, which has been, re- you know, has increased corporate profits significantly. And it looks like, and now when you look at uh, wage growth at 5.1%, uh, the highest 12-month gain or one-year gain on a monthly basis since 2009. I mean, since the consumer is two-thirds of the economy, it kind of makes sense that they keep consuming and we produce to consume and we kind of have this, I'm not going to, uh, virtuous cycle, I yeah. guess is what I'd, I'd say, that can always be interrupted at any time. And so I think it would only make sense to think that, well, it looks like this year's earnings are going to shape up to be really good and now everybody's tending to focus on 2019 earnings and they look like they're going to be pretty good. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons, I think, to uh, feel somewhat positive about this year uh, finishing out and next year for the stock market. But at the same time, we can talk like that, guys. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, and next week, the Dow's at you know, 18,900. I mean, I've lived through them. I, I've, I've been, you know, yeah. you, if you're in this business, whether as an advisor or an investor, the yeah. surprises, you know, there's, there's periods of sheer terror <laughs> even in between yeah. great bull markets. And there's always... The dark side to look on. If if you're in the sweet spot, everything's going right. Well, any change is going to be away from the sweet spot. So you, you have a situation where it may not uh, necessarily be a decline in the future, but it may not be quite as good as we expect right now. And even that can have an impact. So the stock market is based on expectations, and if everyone is incorporated these rosy expectations then there's obviously a downside risk as well so which is always the case in a, in a market because really fred and guys the capital markets tend to outrun it they they out it outruns itself both to the good and the bad yeah. and, and even during those good times it tends to outrun itself and that's that's when trouble can yeah, be we, we may be leading people astray too because we're talking like 
we're market timers about. Sure. And the fact is that all this stuff makes very little difference in terms of most people's investment strategy. It shouldn't really have much impact, if any at all. Uh, it should be irrelevant. Um, you know, when we invest in the stock market or the broad U.S. market or a global portfolio, all you're trying to do is harness the return of businesses over the next decade or two or three. You really shouldn't even be thinking about over the next year or the next month or the next few years. There's, the distribution of outcomes is so wide uh, that it's, it's, a, it's silly to even really think about it. I, I'm really, it's just kind of this backdrop of, hey, everything just feels pretty good right now, but you know, it always feels good until it doesn't, right? Right, and, and like Dr. Gertz said, you just wonder how much of that is already incorporated into the current stock price or stock market prices. You know, if, if everyone knows that everything's great right now, like he said, things could actually be good going forward relative to like just historical averages. But if it's not as good right. as what's already priced in, you could actually have a decline in the market despite pretty good conditions. And kind of evidence of that is when on the downside, maybe corporate earnings go down 20%, but the stock market falls 50%. In other words, capital outruns itself. It does the same thing on the upside. Yeah, yes, everything may end up rosy in the future, but if everybody is anticipating mm -hmm. it and feels like that's baked into the cake, the minute it's just a little less rosy, uh, the, the, the markets can do strange things. And uh, I think we'll go ahead and we'll go to Rich on line one. Rich, thanks for calling Paul Rudy's on the money. Good. I appreciate all your analysis. Uh, I listen to you guys frequently. Is, is this uh, where you tell us now you're broke? Is that where, is this where you tell us now you're broke because you listen to us? Oh, <laughs> well, uh, one, of the, one question I have, though, so you talk a lot about the market stocks, bonds, um, almost exclusively, not quite. Uh, we have investment uh, also in farmland where we're bringing in an income based sure. on that. It was an inheritance, uh, and it's in a trust fund, so there's not a lot we can do with it right now, anyhow. Right. Um but we also have a portfolio uh, where we've got quite a bit of bond money where we're bringing in. It, it also was an inheritance. It's got a 5% non-taxable wow. uh, mean bond, which is doing real well for yeah, us. Yeah. Um, and then I've got a, a, a TSP account where I've got quite a bit of uh, money in it. And I'm, I'm 61. My wife is 65. With all the incomes we have, I'm keeping that in the uh, S&P 500 and in the common stock fund, just okay. so it can keep growing. I'm pulling a little bit out. I'm thinking I've got some cash on the sideline of uh, diversifying even further into real estate where I have an opportunity to buy some properties as a rental income uh, with a cap rate of about 8 to 10%. And I've never really heard you uh, talk much about real estate as part of an investment portfolio. And I wanted to get your take on it. Sure. And, and for those listening, TSB is the thrift savings plan for the federal government employees of sorts. Uh, and so think of it like your 401k. So that's, that's what Rich was talking about. Well, guys, how about real estate? And Fred, feel free to read it. We don't talk about it a lot because most people uh, don't involve themselves in it. That's not a reason not to talk about it. And so I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, because if you look around my experience, guys, and, and, and feel free to get, when I look around this town and almost every town of 100,000 people or even bigger, it doesn't really matter. It always seems like two or three of the wealthiest families in town are the people that were big in real estate. So there's obviously for patient investors. And I, and I think 
uh, from a big picture standpoint, I think people that own real estate over decades uh, uh, share some of the behavioral characteristics uh, for success, even in the stock market side. That is, they don't sit around and worry about their building on the corner being worth you know three percent later, less today than it was yesterday, and they seem to be very patient. So. I think from an extent, what do you think about from a diversification standpoint, Dave? I mean, look, there's real estate talks back. So there, there's some downsides to it. But for people that are inclined to invest in real estate, uh, do you have any issues with that? No. So I'm actually working on a, a retirement investing ebook right now. So a little preview. But one of the sections I have is, you know, I talk about stocks and bonds, generally speaking. And then I say pretty much the only, quote, alternative investment, if you even call it that, that I recommend is real estate. Um, but there's two different ways to go about it. So I think most people should probably have real estate in their portfolio. It's a good diversifier. It doesn't behave exactly like stocks and bonds. That doesn't mean they're always you know, moving in opposite directions. Sometimes real estate's down and the stock market's down, but probably by different amounts. Uh, so there's a good diversification benefit to including it in your portfolio. The question is, how are you going to go about doing that? So there's kind of a couple ways. One is to invest directly in real estate, as Rich is suggesting. You go out and you buy an investment property. Uh, that's one way to do it. The other is to buy basically shares in a real estate investment trust mutual fund or index fund. Um, so that's basically publicly traded real estate companies that are basically wrapped into an, an index fund or a mutual fund so that you can get diversified exposure to a bunch of real estate essentially um, without having to do your own real estate investing, figuring out the properties and dealing with some of the headaches of the borrowing and whatnot. So I think the right option is going to depend on the person, but I definitely think it's a good idea to include it, it in your portfolio in some form or fashion. In fact, Rich, you now that you bring it up, uh, even though we don't talk about it, it of, of when we look at our overall global allocation in the stock market side, for every dollar in the stock market globally, 70 cents of that dollar is in the U.S. for our clients. And of that, 10% of that 70 you know, so 10% of our U.S. equity exposure is in real estate investment trusts. So we've probably neglected to talk about that. And I'm, that's why I'm especially glad that Rich did. Rich is coming at it from a different angle. It's still the same asset class. It's talking about being actively involved in it versus passively involved. And I don't think there's one better than the other. I think that is really more of an attitude issue. I have no idea what the expected returns are for, you know, uh, for one group, the publicly traded, we can get a pretty good concept of, we have good long-term historical data for buying local real estate or whatnot. That's a completely different venture, but it's it's going to the same goal. It, it still lends itself to that idea of diversification. Right. <clears throat> I think the, uh, obviously, investing in a real estate investment trust is kind of like buying another financial asset. And it, I have a very small percentage in that. For what does uh, what do your experience, Fred, uh, and just for Rich, I'm just I'm going to ask Fred this: when it comes to some of these in large endowments and pension yeah. funds that you've been involved with, uh, what's your sense or experience of, of the allocation kind of tend to be? In well, those? probably uh, five or ten percent in okay. many cases, and sometimes in, in really big organizations, it's kind of a substitute for fixed income. For example, <clears throat> TIA Craft bought a local. Uh, farmland sure. operation, and that's part of their portfolio. I think they treat it more like a, a fixed income kind of operation in, in, in some ways rather than, than real estate. And but I think the, that's kind of like Rich's farmland. I yeah. think I would, I, I tend to think of farmland as an income producing right. vehicle. But the, uh, I think the, the problem or, or the uh, uh, challenge arises 
if you're going to invest uh, locally, uh, you have to be hands-on and uh, be in there all the time looking for the best deal, making sure the property is uh, maintained and things of that sort. So it's not a not not passive in the way we talk about. It's really active. It talks back. Right. And, and you have to. And the other thing is, so if you're not willing to put in the effort to uh, manage your property and, and buy at a really good uh, price, you're probably not going to do particularly well. But if you have the energy and the uh, know-how, it's probably a good good option. The other downside is they have kind of double non-diversification. You're in real estate. You're also real estate in a particular area. So it's not likely you're going to buy one house here, another house in New York, and one in California. They'll, they'll probably all be in Champaign-Urbana, and that's great as long as Champaign-Urbana is doing well. But if they go in the wrong direction. Uh, now, Rich, what's the uh, major attraction to you? Uh, I've just read a lot and heard a lot about it, and I wanted to get your take on it. Okay. Well, you know, real estate, as I said, is a significant part of our U.S. allocation. We're going at it from a public standpoint. It's 10%, so that gives you kind of a concept, uh, a barometer of where we sit and we feel. So we certainly wouldn't discourage you. Uh, Ryan, did you have something to add to that? I was just going to say, for the same reason you invest in maybe a mutual fund to spread out diversification, own multiple stocks or hundreds or thousands of stocks in a fund, it's the same reason that REITs exist. You don't invest all your money, particularly in maybe one property rich in Champaign. You want to try to limit your risk if possible. Um, And if it's not something you're an expert in, a REIT gives you a very good way to get diversification in your portfolio. So that's a good point, Rich. Uh, I see the attraction. A lot of people have that affinity. my, My real estate career... Ended after one year. I, I bought a, a, a condominium, and after uh, people renting and leaving and not paying and things of that sort, I got out after after one year. Right. It's, it's not a it's not a fun thing unless you enjoy that kind of thing. If you enjoy it and are good at it, it's really great. But if you want to have a leisure retirement, that's probably not the. <laughs> Thing you want to be involved with, right? And, and there are some benefits to direct real estate investing, like be, like tax benefits, sure. pr- primarily because you can do is it ten thirty one exchanges with real estate, right? Um, so you can basically swap a property for another property property to do, basically avoid paying capital gains at that point, kind of keep defer. deferring, yeah. basically defer it to the future, um, and then being able to claim depreciation on the property to offset some of your income. Um, it really does come down to. Are those benefits and some of the benefits, other one that's kind of a double-edged sword is ability to use leverage. That can cut both ways, so it's kind of a benefit and a downside. Um, Are those kind of factors or characteristics of direct real estate investing worth the extra headaches involved of pursuing That's an attitude issue. And, And you also have to know that a lot of times you're going up against people who have been real estate investors for a long time, so the people you're buying or selling a property from especially initially when you're first learning, they probably know more than you. You know, I'm just thinking of people in town. It's like I wouldn't want to trade basically against a lot of these real estate investors in town without that expertise. I was going to make one last comment, which uh, uh, my farmer friends never appreciate. But I'm sure if someone came to you and said, I have uh, X amount of uh, assets and 9% are in farmland, uh, as an investment advisor, you're not diversified, but yet farmers have a, an attachment to their land, so it has a kind of a life of its own. Quite, you don't no treat question. it like a, a financial asset. Yeah, it's a, look, I've been at this for 35-plus years, Rich, and people that come to me with farmland probably took me 15 years to realize when, a, when somebody walks in with, a, with some farmland that they've inherited – 
to talk about selling it and it's you know that it may be not the optimal way to be in your portfolio they look at you like you know like the people that think there's conspiracy theory in 9-11 but uh you know they look at you kind of funny uh, so, uh, you know, I hope that helps, Rich. I, I think we would encourage you to do it, but go down your path. I think it's as much of an attitude. I know a lot of people that have owned real estate and people that used to and now don't for reasons and people that just can't get enough. It seems to be that particular cat that really likes to own individual, actively manage real estate, and they can do quite well if they're really good at it. Does that help? Yeah. Thank you much. All right. Good to talk to you, Rich. Thanks for calling. Again, you can call in at 356-9397 or I got to get that. I always have that memorized or text us at 351-5357. Speaking of text, guys, I'm going to go to Brian in Champaign. It says, pardon my voice here. It's going a little bit. Hello, I have a little money in an IRA account. I'm glad I don't have a lot because every day lately I notice I'm taking a loss. I don't understand it. All the experts say the economy is doing great. If the economy is doing, and by the way, I'm going to keep going, but it sounds like a lot of people out there. Uh, If the economy is doing so good and corporations are making record profits, why doesn't the market do better? A normal person would think if companies are making more money, therefore profits are higher and the stock should increase in value. My question is pretty much this. Why doesn't the stock market reflect what the experts claim? Uh, what say about the great economy, Mike and Champagne? I, I don't, I'm not sure how Mike, Mike, how you're coming to that conclusion. Now, I, I have some suspicions, and you guys can weigh in on this. Sometimes we're diversified either in a way where it doesn't seem like in a particular period of time everything's doing great, but me. But a lot of times it's because of a defective strategy. But not always. It can be just a diversification strategy. And you really have to define that time period. And so for, for Mike, I really don't know what the time period is. But I think the broad U.S. market this year was, is up 6% or so, maybe 5 or 6%. I lost track. I know last week was down. I didn't pay much attention to it. For a while, the broad U.S. market was up 8 <clears throat> I would say a globally diversified stock market portfolio was probably up when 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 it was up eight, it was probably up five, four or five percent. So global portfolios just aren't not doing as well. But that's year to date. But last year, well, look, the economies. Let's go back to two thousand and nine, where we were at Dow sixty five hundred. Now we're at Dow twenty six thousand ish. We've seen stock prices triple over the last ten years. Uh, I would. It's been one of the greatest bull markets, Mike. That we've ever experienced i don't know why maybe mike is having a disappointing ride but it could be just that it could be <coughs> some of the classic ones would be maybe referring to a 401k plan with heavy expenses maybe funded by variable annuity products uh, with very high expenses it may be uh maybe too much concentration in one area if you were invested completely in emerging markets this year you might be down 15 percent and the stock market's up six uh, there's a lot of reasons for this, Mike, but I suspect that if you're broadly diversified and something as simple, and again, this is just something to consider, this is not advice, is a, is a, a total U.S. stock market index fund over the last, well, 10 years, it's been an absolute home run, and even this year, it's up a respectable 5 or 6% probably year to date, so... I'm really, I'm not, I'm not feeling it or, right. or getting it without more information. You probably need to have some kind of look at the... Uh, of the the mix. Aspects of the portfolio. Because uh, the, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, they said, said nine and a half years ago, which is the kind of the beginning of the, of the real crisis, the markets have fourfold, including uh, dividends. So it's hard to 
uh, see it going down at, in, in that long period of time. So maybe it's a matter of uh, asset allocation or cost or something of that sort. So it could be a myriad of things. Uh, look, I've had, uh, I've had clients over the last 35 years come in and think they're not doing well. And sometimes it's just a perspective issue. It's like, well, in the bl last block of time, um, look, a diversified portfolio, for, for example, I've been through some excruciating periods. I, I go back to the mid-90s until we reached the year 2000. So for five years in a row, the broad U.S. stock market, and if you just own something as simple as this, a Vanguard Standard & Poor's 500 index fund, you earned returns 20% or more five years in a row. During that period, the global, uh, globally diversified portfolio, uh, and I haven't changed my structure of my portfolio since 1990, so uh, believe me, I, I remember all this. From my, if my memory uh, is right, and, and I'm not exaggerating because if I, I wouldn't bring it up if it was, you know, it, it's not a positive thing, but it, it is in a sense of a story. During that period where the broad U.S. market was up 20% a year, my globally diversified stock portfolios were up about. 12 or so percent a year. Now, most people would have signed up today for the next five years at 12 percent a year. But when an index fund that basically charges you nothing is going up 20 percent a year, it's very hard to remain globally diversified. Now, as you guys know, I'm stubborn. I'm the most stubborn investment advisor probably in the world. I don't change for anybody or anything. They can, a client can walk out the door. I'd rather have them do that. I'm not going to change my principles of how to invest. And then between 2000 and 2009, then we saw the opposite, you know, at least directionally. Uh, $100,000 invested in something like a Vanguard Index 500 over those 10 years from 2000 to 2009, what some people refer to as the lost decade, 100000 ended up roughly $90,000 after 10 years. So a 10% total return decline, negative return. And a globally diversified strategy was up probably 60 or 70% over that period. Now go from 2009 to date, well, over the last seven or eight years, now U.S. stocks have been outperforming international stocks. So we can go into these very long trends just based on how we're diversified and feel like we're underperforming for all the wrong reasons. Does that, does that sound like a reasonable explanation possible too as well? Yeah, I mean, just put really simply, I think if you look at specifically the last couple of years, the only way your portfolio would be down over that time frame yeah. is if you had almost all your money in international companies because yeah. the U.S. did so well last year and it's also up this year. Right. You'd have to have the vast majority of your money in international stocks, emerging markets. Yeah, markets, if you were invested 100% internationally or this year, you probably are, have a negative return for the year. and That would certainly send your brain a signal <laughs> saying, hey, yeah. well, everybody's talking about the stock market going up. Everybody's making money but me. Yeah. And that wouldn't tell me to switch wholesale over to the U.S. It's no, you need to own both. That's kind of the thing. It's like you need to have, you, you don't want your money concentrated in international or U.S. Yeah. Now, luckily, I'm sure he wasn't invested in a hedge fund, but uh, hedge funds are the smartest people in the world, and they've had tremendous underperformance the last 10 years, so you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, we call those uh, mutual funds for rich idiots or hedge <laughs> funds. Uh, but, yeah, supposedly the world's smartest thinkers and walk away, set up hedge funds, and really not to the delight of their investors in the aggregate. And, and in the aggregate, it's all that matters. It's also a bad 10 years, but that's uh, 10 years is a long time. <laughs> uh, 10 years is a long time to stay with any strategy. But, you know, uh, we have a value tilt in our portfolio, and certainly value tilt has been, you know, it's, 
it's done okay, but relative to non-value, you wish you were not in value. Uh, it's, it's subpar returns, uh, but that's okay. I, I stubbornly stay with it, and I've been through those periods before. In fact, 1995 through 2000 uh, was a period where people like Warren Buffett, you know, they were a mere image of the NASDAQ 100 chart, you know, is going at all-time new highs, and Warren Buffett stock, of course, being value tilted to the extreme, uh, looked like it was a terrible idea to invest in Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. I don't think anybody feels that way today. So, well, le- and, lessons from the past. And it's probably worth mentioning because I think his main question and kind of premise is actually somewhat true that especially in the short run, the stock market and the economy aren't necessarily that correlated. Well, Fred They're, brings that up all the time. And, and that's, you know, we talked about that at the beginning of our show is it's because the stock market's basically discounting the future. When you look at economic data, we're basically looking backwards. So there's a discrepancy between those two. And and like I said earlier, sometimes even when things are going well, if it's not going as well as we thought it was going to, that can lead to market declines. I think so. I think it probably for Mike, uh, you probably you should probably talk to somebody and say, "What's going on? Should I be disappointed?" Maybe right. you might walk into our office and I'll say, "Well, Mike, you got the returns for what you were invested in. In fact, you've done in that con- from that standpoint, you've done just fine. It just happens to be your mix of assets are, have produced that return." And I think what you have to I mean, isn't that really the beauty of being so there's there's a good part of being globally diversified and there's always a downside there's the extended periods when you're underperforming the broad u.s market there's extended periods you're outperforming it the outperforming nobody really thinks too much about but when you go a five-year period and you're underperforming uh, a simple broad u.s market stock index yeah. fund that now you can buy for free literally uh you know, it always gets circles. It always circles back to it's ultimately it's our behavior is our undoing as a successful investor. It turns a successful investor into a failed investor every uh, time. I, I usually tell that the Gary Brinson story that uh, Brinson was a really great investment advisor who was value oriented. He got stuck in the 1990s. I used to buy his data all the time. He, <laughs> and he got stuck in the 1990s, which underperformed uh, and uh, eventually. Uh, got out of the business or out of that particular aspect of it just before the yeah, just before it all took off, right? Yeah. And or, anyway, it didn't, oh, go the other way. Actually. Yeah, I mean, the value held up better than the yes, it did. <laughs> and so we we've seen this a lot. Uh, you know, we we've seen we've seen fifteen year track records. There, there was a manager, Bill Miller, who who managed a value mutual fund that for fifteen years in a row outperformed the Standard Poor's five hundred index, and then in the two thousand eight two thousand nine collapse. Mm-hmm. Gave it all back and then some, so that you know it was. It, so it doesn't take but one bad year to erase a ten-year outperformance track record. I don't think people appreciate that enough. It doesn't take much to give away all the advantage that you've had over the last five, ten, or fifteen years with just one bad year. Yeah. And uh, one thing about a diversified portfolio. You're never going to brag, but you're never going to go to Hardee's and sit down with your friends and, and be as miserable as they are when you know when just the broad U.S. stock market is down horribly, and maybe you're not. But on the other hand, in all fairness and all yeah. completeness, globally diversified portfolios, when things get gummed up, like 2008, 2009, can go down in lockstep with a broad U.S. stock market. So I don't want to give anybody the illusion that diversification from a stock market standpoint at this point provide you any real hedge in turmoil or in a crisis moment. In a crisis moment, all asset classes or most asset classes seem to go down in lockstep. Uh, We're talking about periods of 10 or 15 year periods when you really start seeing and harvesting the advantages 
of diversification. And there's not always a lock, you're gonna get them. Okay. Uh, guys, I wanna move on a little bit. Um, you know, as people know, and listeners know, as, as retirement planners, we always offer free consultations to people, which probably sounds a little hokey, but I mean, it's just a way for us to introduce ourselves. And sometimes people just need that <coughs> extra nudge and they want to walk into a place that they don't feel like they're going to be sold to, et cetera. But there's a lot of reasons people find it really hard to go actually make that appointment with a financial advisor. Uh, part of it, I suspect, uh, if I'm missing any, it's I might be embarrassed over past mistakes that I've made. Uh, maybe I don't even know what my goals are. I mean, how do I know what my goals are if I don't even know what the possibilities are? Yet advisors always want to, first question they ask you many times is, what are your goals? And it can really be off-putting. And, 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 and I always have taken, and I think we all do, this idea of, look, we're just talking. We're just talking. We're just spitballing a little bit. We're just guessing uh, what the future might hold for you. What's your ideal vision of your two to three decades in retirement? Uh, way before money ever gets brought up. It's more of a, how do we get, to what, what makes this person tick? What is it that's going to make them happy? Is, it, is this the type of person who's a hard person that you're never going to make them happy unless they can brag about having the highest return, which are people I don't take on as clients? Or are they people that just want to do well by doing good and do good for, you know, everybody has their own purpose and it's really starting to drill down. And what's the purpose of the money that you have and the income streams that you have and how are you going to make the most out of them? And son, Paul, Paul Jr. Uh, recently wrote a blog. Of course, he's not here. How to help people get over that hesitation, what to expect, and what you can do to prepare for your first meeting with a financial advisor. And the first thing, as I was kind of alluding to, actually has nothing to do with finances. And that he put in his first one was prepare to talk about your personal life. I might have softened that a little bit and said, you know, but don't, but parenthetically, but don't be afraid to do that. Uh, it's it's going to be in it. And it doesn't mean you need to know what your cable bill is and how much you spent on food last month. It's really big picture stuff. Getting to know somebody, what, where'd they come from? Where'd you meet your spouse? Where'd you grow up? How, wh what was your family like as far as terms of wealth? How do you feel about debt? How do you feel about where you are? What are some of the biggest mistakes you think you've made? What are some of the investments you've made that you've liked? Why did you like that? You know, why, why do you consider that successful? It's really kind of like that, Ryan. You, had, you have something to add to that? And just that in itself can be somewhat off-putting. If somebody walks into an office thinking, hey, I'm here to talk about numbers and dollars and returns, those are very squishy, kind of a personal, emotional feelings, and that might surprise someone in the first place. And I think so. I, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it, could, it could be, in the wrong set of circumstances, a pressure-filled situation where, where it doesn't seem all that pleasant, as opposed to just... You know, when people walk into our office, one of the first things they're going to hear is just, what's going on in your world? What brings you to us today? What is it you would like to talk about? When you walk out of here today, what, what is it you want to walk out having had answered? We don't go into it, and I'm sure as a, I can say this, I'm sure for a lot of advisors, I'm not, I'm not here to just promote Rudy Wealth Management. I'm, promote, I'm trying to promote the idea of, going, of talking to a qualified advisor. But I can tell you in our experience, it's, it's not going to be pressure filled. It's really more about taking that first step. I don't know, what do you guys think about that? I mean, what's well, you, you, you guys do it too. What, what's your kind of your first reaction to Paul's article? What keeps people from talking to a qualified financial advisor? Well, and I don't want to give people the impression that, I mean, maybe some advisors do, but that you're getting into super like 
nitty-gritty details of personal stuff, but there's practical stuff that you need to know about their family life. Like if you have children that are dependent on you, well, that has or parents. that has big implications. If you have parents that are dependent on you, that has implications. Uh, your health, that has implications as far as what life. A lot of it gets down to the assumptions that you use in your financial plan. Some of that stuff's going to be affected by your actual family life, and the goals are going to obviously be affected by your family life. But, but sometimes that can be broad. Like I, you know, I frequently ask people, okay, uh, you're not retiring because you don't think you can or you don't want to. And usually it's I don't think I can or both. So it is kind of big picture stuff, but I think it's that, f- it's you know, it's like anything. Taking that first step is the hard part. His second one he wrote was be prepared to discuss your goals. Now I talked a little bit about that, but what is it your take when, when if if I say Ryan tell people what if you're going to talk about goals kind of the context of that a little bit what we're really hoping for is people have kind of given this a little bit of thought already so they have an idea of uh, specific goals they want to achieve not just I want to retire or I, I hope to have a lot of money but I want to retire in five years and be able to spend 80 or 90 percent of the money that I make now from my income so giving a little bit of specifics so that as financial planners like ourselves we can dr- draw up a plan that actually funds or meets that particular lifestyle or that goal that someone's hoping for. But then again, some people don't actually know the answers to those questions. Right. So, and some people will say, well, uh, they almost default to like age 65. Right, right. And just for whatever reason, they just like anchor to these numbers or 62 because that's when they get Social Security. And so sometimes it's like, well, we can almost reverse this process that Paul wrote in the article. And it's like, yeah, ideally we get some goals first. But like you said, sometimes it's, well, give me a ballpark idea of kind of what your assets and income streams look like. And we can kind of fence in like, here's roughly how much income you're going to have if you retired right now. And then we can look at different retirement dates and then kind of almost basically add an extra step in the process and say, let's look at some potential ideas. And then they can kind of say, a lot of times it's, oh, I didn't even realize I could do some of that stuff. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, I get to tell people what the experience is most likely going to be like if they walk into our offices. If they're contemplating retirement, maybe not, maybe they don't know what date. Uh, maybe they have a concept. Uh, but most people really don't have much of a concept of whether it's even possible. So I think what we end up with after our first meeting is, and usually in that first meeting because I've done this so long, is – I can give them, you use a term that I use a lot, let's just start fencing it in. Let's just start talking about what's even possible. Because it's my belief that until you know what's reasonably possible, you know, forget how you slice and dice it. Uh, if your total spendable income from all sources, including your assets and your income streams, if I estimate it to be 5000 a month spendable, so you don't have to think about taxes, uh, okay, now you know that it's not far off that number. It's not 8000 like you hoped for, or it's not 4000 like you thought would have been enough. It's actually more. Uh, and it could be a bias because people that come to see us tend to be people that have been somewhat frugal through their lives, and they've been good savers. Uh, so we have this kind of this, it's, it's a biased data set. But I would say this, most people that walk in wondering if it's even possible Usually by the end of that first meeting, have a really good concept and are surprised that 
it's not only possible, but they're going to retire into a higher standard of living than they might have expected. And it's almost, would you agree, guys, it's almost a disbelief. It's almost kind of like they don't really want to believe it. And at some point they're going to say, okay, i got to see those numbers because mm-hmm. I, I'm really not believing it. It's just because they've been frugal and they've been savers and, and the combination of those two things. No, I, just, I was going to say that <clears throat> you probably don't have a random uh, group of people. I, uh, we talked last time about the 4% rule, and there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and there was a survey, and a third of the people thought 10% was a reasonable withdrawal rate. So you could oh, disabuse of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just disabuse them of that idea. Uh, uh, wow, that, that would be probably trouble. Uh, Go ahead, Dave. This is a little bit of a side note here, but just reading through this and talking about it makes me think, I think a lot of people, the key message here is that you shouldn't go into an advisor's office and be like, here's my money, how are you going to invest it? Because the answer is going to be, That makes me well, feel uncomfortable. It's even. like, I have no idea because I don't know what I'm investing it for. Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? Like, if do you need this money in two years? Well, then that's going to be one thing. Is it for retirement 20 years from now? That's another one. Is it retirement two years from now? It's like ultimately we have to have something to go off of. But I think a lot of people still believe the role of a financial advisor is to forecast the economy or forecast the market or pick winning stocks or basically choose a mutual fund that does those things for them. Right. And at the end of the day, none of those things seem – There's not a lot of value. There's not a lot of evidence that anyone can consistently do that. It's right. just consistently over and over again. It shows that people who take that approach end up underperforming. But what is it worth to a person if, one, you can pretty much eliminate their worry possibly uh, throughout retirement? Uh, they don't have to spend the time doing it themselves. They, they don't have to second-guess themselves constantly, things that they do and don't do. I, I Recently, I've been saying this to people. Uh, you know, a lot of pe- There's always this constant media challenge of how could people charge 1% of assets under management? I said, you know why? Because it's cheaper and it costs less to pay me 1%. This is just my, my Paulism here. I can't prove it, and, and I don't want anybody to, you know, to think it's proof. But my feeling is, look... People pay us 1% because it costs them less than doing it themselves. And, and when you start, yeah, that causes you to think for a minute, well, what do you mean? If I pay 1%, I do it myself, it's free. Is it really free? Is it a life of emotional turmoil? Are you maybe inclined to spend more than you should be spending and worrying about it? Are you? In, are, is there a potential you'll be 85 looking back, recognizing that you have this big pot of money now, but you didn't do all the great things you really wanted to do because nobody told you you could? Uh, there's a cost you know, obviously there's a cost to hiring an advisor and you want to pick a qualified advisor and you want to make sure that there's enough value added. And probably that means you don't want to pay them all your money up front. You want to, you want them to demonstrate their value over their lifetime. One of the advantages of paying a fee over time as opposed to paying commissions up front is, well, uh, you know, it's kind of this unilateral agreement to agree. As long as we both like each other and, and the client thinks there's this value proposition, it, it probably makes sense. But kind of getting back to the article, uh, you, you know, um, so David, you kind of your take is you stir you stir it all together. You guys get though why it can be intimidating to walk into a financial advisor's office. For sure, I think I think it is intimidating, and I, I think just one more note on kind of what I was talking about is a lot of advisors still think their role is to time the market or pick winning stocks. Well, yeah, or it doesn't mutual stop funds. nine out of ten. And I would say, you know, if the first thing that the advisor starts talking about is here's our investment philosophy and we here's our process for picking actively managed funds and they've outperformed over this block of time and insinuating that they're going to outperform over the next block of time, which is not how it works. 
you know, that to me is something that would be a red flag. Right, so you know you have a ringer. Be, you know you have a ringer there. Or if they start trying to sell you on the merits of a certain investment product, again, probably a red flag. I, w- I want to focus, Dave, uh, just some things you might want to bring. It's not a necessity, but if you want to walk out of that meeting having accomplished something, you may never do business with that person. You, you know, you're just in there. Maybe you're just trying to get this preliminary fence-it-in idea of, is, it, is, is retiring anytime soon at the standard of living that I would desire? Is it even possible? And yet they can generally walk out of the office with that, but you're probably going to need a few things to, to make. I know I am, and you know I'm kind of like by the end of any first meeting, if that's what they want, I could tell them usually within 100 or $200 a month what their standard of living is going to look like. Upon further review, we'll do the deep dive analysis, but it's always pretty close. What might they bring that's not too much, but just enough, if that's the kind of determination, can I retire anytime soon, and what would my standard of living look like? Well, I think if you want to keep things really simple, if you just made a list of all your assets, basically what type of account and how much money's in it. It really could be we have 182000 in tax-deferred IRAs, et cetera, 401ks, just lump them all in one. Yep. And then I have personal brokerage accounts with $102,000 in them, but jointly, it doesn't matter who's they're in at the moment. And we have uh, $50,000 or whatever the number is in tax-exempt Roth type of accounts, et cetera. So when you say bring in a list of assets, really you could just say, I got, there's you got three buckets. You either have tax-deferred, tax-exempt, pro- or, tax or a taxable personal brokerage. But the account. other thing is it's not just investment accounts either. If you have uh, real estate, like private real estate, sure. that's not in, in, uh, shown in your investment accounts, then it's... An advisor should know about that. Farmland. If you, if you have farmland, an advisor should know about that. Well, it's know, nice a, a to know the value of uh, your house. <clears throat> a guaranteed pension is like an asset, too. Exactly. So that was actually <clears throat> going to be my next section would be then a list of income streams. So if you're still working, your salaries, um, and then your expected retirement income streams, such as Social Security or pensions, or if you're retired, it's just going to be those retirement And I'll add streams. the key Social Security number to ha- be armed with is what your Social Security is projected to be at full retirement age. An advisor can go backwards and forwards from there. You don't really need to know all of it. Just what it is for each person, if it's a, if it's a married couple mm. or partnership, uh, just what it is at full retirement age. And then account statements for all your investment accounts. Uh, only if maybe there's other more specific questions that they want to drill down to that say, you know, I'm not sure if this account's right. <clears throat> you may never do business with them, but here's my 401k at work. Here's my choices. What would be an intelligent choice? Then that would kind of need a statement and your choices <clears throat> that you have uh, in a 401k or a 403b or a 457. Exactly. Plan. So just rephrasing that is if you're not really looking to hire a financial advisor on an ongoing basis, but you want some advice about a specific investment decision, what I would do is bring in the account statement so you can say, here's exactly what I'm invested in. Do you think any changes are warranted? What do you think of, you know, how I'm allocated? Are there any problems, any gaps, any redundancies, excess costs, stuff like that? Um, but generally speaking, if you think, well, I'm, I'm looking for a financial advisor, eventually that advisor is probably going to recommend selling the majority of what you own. I mean, maybe not necessarily, but... Uh, well, if you're, in our case, it's certainly going to be true. Typically, and especially in the retirement accounts where there's not tax consequences, um, then it's not as really relevant because it's like, well, it really doesn't matter what it's invested in right now. If you're going to be hiring me, we're going to be you know, switching it over to whatever our investment portfolio and going, is anyways. And going into that meeting, guys, uh, don't you think the healthy attitude, and I say this to prospective clients all the time, uh, somewhere towards the end, I'm going to say, look, you don't have to do anything. 
uh, you know, your job is not to make me or my family happy, and that's me and me and you guys, or and me and my family, money. It's to make your family happy and your family money. If we fit into that picture, great. If, you know, if we don't think we can add value, enough value for our fee, we're not gonna take you on as a client anyway. Uh, it, it, but there's certainly a lot of benefits, whether it's <coughs> us or somebody else in town. This is not about going to Rudy Wealth Management. This is about, sure, we're talking about what it might be, the experience might be if you walk into our offices. Uh, we're not suggesting that's better or worse than what other people's do. We're just giving you a flavor of our style. Um, everybody has their own style they're going to like. There's some people that aren't going to choose us just because maybe we're too laid back and I wear shorts a lot of time in the summertime <laughs> and sandals. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, we, we, we definitely go to our own drum, but some people may like someone a little more formal in attitude, et cetera. But there's a lot of qualified people in Champaign-Urbana. That's the good news. People that have a financial advisor and a financial planner, not just a financial advisor, let's talk about a financial advisor that is the king of the king or queen of the planning process, which is an ongoing life process. There's no question in the study show time and time again, people with a planner and a plan that's actively monitored and done properly are happier, live happier lives and are more at peace and they worry less. Um, that's it's, regardless of who it's with that tends to be the case. You get the wrong advisor, you may worry more, <laughs> you may cause undue stress to you, but people have to ask a lot of questions on the front end. Do you think people should be intimidated to ask really hard questions? Like, exactly, David, show me how much this is going to cost me, not just what you're taking and what I'm paying you, but what is Charles Schwab, what's the cost of doing business with them? And how about the mutual funds you choose? And in my case, now that I'm approaching 60, before you guys came on, it was always, well, how long are you going to stay in this business? And they were reluctant. Or even to say, how, how is it that you can't steal my money? Tell me that. How is my money protected? Uh, don't, you, don't you think that's fair and no advisor should be feel the least bit squeamish to ask? You should feel free to ask any question that might even make you feel awkward to ask it. It's, it's your family and your money. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I was thinking about mentioning that, but I think people in the Midwest, in particular, smaller towns in the Midwest, tend to be too nice. And I think there's a certain uh, benefit to just really candid communication. And I think a lot of times, you know, you think of like a, a Chicago person or a East Coast New Yorker. It's like they don't hesitate to ask those tough questions. And I think if you want to kind of build a uh, avatar in your mind of right. kind of the attitude you should have, it's not that you need to be off-putting, but it's like, no, you need certain information. It's a big decision to hire a financial advisor, and you shouldn't forego asking a question because you are worried about hurting someone's feelings. You or got it feels uncomfortable. 15 seconds. What's the first question a person should ask an advisor? Ask an advisor. I'm going to ask each of you, by the way. I honestly... What's the question I, that you I, would want to know and not walk out without having answered? I'd say, you know, am I on track for retirement and when? Yeah. I'd, I'd probably want to know how they're compensated. Yeah, fiduciary issues. Okay. Yeah. That, would be, that would be mine too. So those are all good. Uh, you know, how are you compensated in detail? Uh, are you a fiduciary, which means, you know, are you working for a brokerage firm where there's this inherent conflict of interest? Doesn't make it bad. It is just an inherent conflict of interest where you're earning commissions. Or are you a fee-based advisor that does well if I do well and doesn't do so well if I don't do well and, and kind of eliminates much of the conflict of interest. So uh, I think I would probably go with that too. So uh, most people, however, 
at the end of the day, Ryan, your question is the one they probably walk in wanting to know the most is, mm -hmm. uh, is it even possible that I might be able to retire anytime soon? And give me a sense of what that might look at. So we're certainly able to do that. You can call us at 356-1400 anytime. Well, thanks for listening to the show today. Dr. Fred, thanks for coming thanks. in. David and uh, Ryan, thanks for coming in as well. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more on the money. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.